Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hoder. Hoder. Buddy. I know you're looking for something to do down there beneath the cave, but I want to make sure you know. Hold on. <laughs> Binge mode contains adult content. If you're okay with what you see on Game of Thrones, you'll be okay with binge mode. Hold on. And now, binge mode. Hold on. Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com, joining me today. Now that he's finished holding that door, hold it up. It's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Hodor. <laughs> Jason. Mm-hmm. Our dad taught us an important lesson. I remember that. Remember that you're a podcaster. Yes. Comport yourself with dignity in the studio. Try to stay out of fights. I try. But if you have to fight, win. Always. And that's what we're trying to do. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We're deep diving one at a time. Spoiler warning, as always, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this episode and beyond. So grab your obsidian daggers and hand grenades. Yeah. Fireballs? Something like magic <laughs> eggs. <laughs> because it's time to break down season six, episode five, the mind blowing, heart melting, yeah, the door. The time has yes. come for Bran to leave the Three Eyed Raven. That's right. And the time has come for us to discuss one of the most astounding episodes of Game of Thrones, an hour of TV that. Not only shredded audiences emotionally, but also advanced the plot in a more crucial way than really all but a handful of other episodes of this show. This is famously, of course, remembered and referred to as the Hoder episode. But it is, you know, in my heart, the summer episode. (laughs) And regardless, it's jam-packed with world-expanding and clarifying events and reveals. So, we're going to dive deep into a lot of this, but first, let's offer a brief refresher on what actually happened in the door by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. Up at Castle Black, Sansa receives a letter from Littlefinger inviting her to a clandestine meeting in the ruins of Molestown. Shouts Molestown whore. Shouts to Molestown whore! Sansa brings Brienne with her. Littlefinger (laughs) offers Sansa the Knights of the Vale, and she confronts him in a great... Great, great exchange about his role in the marriage deal with Ramsay. He makes his play. Sansa, you need your own army. John presides over a meeting of the Stark War Council, which includes Sansa, Davos, Brienne, Ed, 
Torment, and Melisandre? <laughs> okay, <so>. that's fine. <laughs> they desperately need fighting men, and it will fall to John to make the case to the Houses of the North. Sansa mentions that the Blackfish has retaken Riverrun, a piece of information she learned from Littlefinger. She lies, though, and says that she knows it because she read a letter meant for Ramsay. Sansa later sends Brienne to Riverrun to ask for aid. Meanwhile, in Braavos, the waif still kicking Arya's ass somehow. Yeah. Jockin pulls Arya aside and tells her the history of the Faceless Men. He then gives Arya her next mission, take out Lady Crane, an actress in a mummer's troupe. Arya scouts her target and, you know, takes in the theater. The theater! Culture is important. Acting! <laughs> the troupe is putting on a play about the War of the Five Kings. It's our story, the story we've been watching, and now Arya is watching it too. Some of this is amusing. They depict Robert as a drunken sot. Yes, correct. Ned as a grasping idiot. Well, depending on your mood, you could say yes or no. Joffrey as an innocent. Hilarious. (laughs) And Cersei, the target, Lady Crane is the one portraying Cersei as the doting, loving maternal figure. Tyrion, scheming devil. Really got that wrong, guys. Arya gives it a 15% Rotten Tomatoes score. On Naga's Hill, the Iron Islands King's Moot time. the King's Moot. Yara steps forward to make her claim to the Salt Throne. Theon addresses the Ironborn, and he makes it clear that though he is the last surviving son of the late Balon Greyjoy, he wants Yara to rule. Then, is that your on Greyjoy's music? <laughs> he steps up, does a 360 dunk on Yara, mentions, <laughs> you know, just an offhand way that Theon doesn't have a cock anymore, <laughs> wins the acclaim of his people, and announces that he plans to marry Daenerys Targaryen. Yara and Theon flee for their lives, stealing a portion of the Iron Fleet, no matter. Euron orders the construction of a thousand ships. On the road to Marine from Vastothrak, Jorah, this is a big one for me, guys, tells Danny that he's grayscale positive. <laughs> and that huge spoiler alert here. Turn away. Come this back is, in 10 this seconds. This is huge. If you don't want to know how the story ends. Tells her that he loves her. (laughs) Who saw that coming? I don't... Man, that blew my mind. Color me stunned. As he turns to walk away, she calls him back. Your queen commands you. Tears in her eyes and love in her heart and perhaps just the smallest stirring in her loins. (laughs) Orders Jorah to find a cure because she's going to need him by her side. When she takes the seven kingdoms. Yes! In Marine proper, Danny's small council, minus her, of course, weighs how best to spin the recent reduction in violence. Tyrion hits on an idea. Use Kinvara, a red priestess from Verlantis who's waving the Team Dragon Queen flag as Danny's voice on the streets. One rub. She's fucking nuts. Yes, she is. <laughs> and then, finally, Oof. a cave under the tree, north of the wall, and... I guess if we're being accurate here, across time and space. Yeah. Big episode for Bran, guys. The Three-Eyed Raven shows Bran how the White Walkers were created. 
by the children of the forest. Wow. No big deal. That right. is a massive reveal. We did not know this. We're going to talk about this more later, including how the timeline differs from the book. That's big. Bran's yep. learning a lot. He wants to keep learning more, and who can blame him? You wet an appetite. You got to sate it. During nap time. <laughs> Three-Eyed Raven taking a snooze. Bran's bored in, I guess, his version of sneaking out of his bedroom through the window yeah. in the middle of the night. Bran jacks into the treater net without adult supervision. He sees the army of the dead. Initially, the Whites cannot see him. Right. He's making his way through their ranks. And then he comes upon the Night's King and his walker mates on their horses. And suddenly... The Night's King sees him. Then everyone sees Bran. And then the Night's King touches Bran, marking him, breaking the protective wards that kept the walkers out of the cave. This is not good. Or is it? We'll get to that later. With not much time left, and without really giving Mira proper time to prepare and proper instructions on what might need to occur in the next few moments, the Three-Eyed Raven gives Bran one more lesson. He takes him back to Winterfell to the time when Ned Stark was a boy. This is a crucial moment in Stark history, in Bran's story. We are going to try to figure out why. Well, one thing that happens while Bran is there is that he wargs into Hodor's mind across time. Present day activates Hodor, to help save them, to help them escape the cave. Hodor, in the past, in the vision, Willis at the time, makes eye contact with Bran. The milky white covers his pupils. He begins to seize, comprehension dawning on Bran about what he's witnessing and what the implications are. Back in the present day, as Willis is seizing in the past, the army of the dead has arrived, swarming the cave. Things are about to get painful, guys. First, Summer, a proud wolf. Proud. A true friend. Yes. A warrior. It's true. In his own right, sacrifices himself to buy Bran just a little more time. Give me the loudest fucking bells we've ever had. Big bells. For Summer. Gonna need you to take over from here. The three-eyed raven falls. He allows himself to be axed down by the Night's King. Give me those bells. Leaf, a child of the forest fall. She was good, but we don't need the bells for her. Bran, who is warging into Hordor, remember, um, has Hodor hold a door against the army of the dead as they try to swarm after Mira as she drags Bran through the, the icy forest. And Hodor, of course, falls while holding the door. Give me the fucking bells, motherfucker! Hodor's younger self is somehow damaged by what happens during the attack, and that is what causes current Hodor's inability to speak. The depth of Bran's power is a game changer. Mira drags Bran, who's still jacked into the web, to safety. Tears streaming down our faces. Isn't it incredible? I was fucking blown away by this episode. It's an incredible hour of TV. There are so many reveals, so many things that book readers didn't know, and that have people have been wondering for decades, basically. And it's also just such a gut punch. Hodor, yeah. Hodor's a really well-loved character, and finally understanding that origin story, how the words, how repeating the words hold the door over and over and over again morphed 
as his mind was addled into the one phrase that he would continue to repeat then for the rest of his life, Hodor, Hodor, Hodor. Summer, truly, all, all jokes aside about my direwolf obsession, this is a huge loss for Bran. I mean, Summer loss. is his, protector. in many ways, yeah. closest companion and chief protector. And Bran's numbers are thinning. His yeah. army is thinning. Our tears, though, streaming freely <laughs> down our cheeks. Mal? Yeah. Everyone yeah. is what they are, where they are, for a reason. Terrible things happen for a reason. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. And it's a fucking really big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is great power and great responsibility. Let's talk about first Bran's first vision where he sees the children of the forest create the White Walkers. What better example of the responsibility that comes with great power could there be? The children of the forest at some point in time created the White Walkers. So uh, I guess we'll describe the vision. Bran is taken back to that uh, circle of stones by a weirwood tree, obviously in the Far, 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 far north. That but, like, spiral shape we've yes, seen associated we've seen with the walkers numerous times. And, but it's not, there's no snow on the ground. It appears to be something like autumn or perhaps spring. Uh, there, winter, do, does winter exist at this time or is it just lessened? We don't know. But there's a man tied to the tree and the children in the forest are huddled together discussing something, discussing what to do with him, perhaps. And Leaf approaches him with an obsidian dagger, plunges it slowly into his heart, not all the way in, and the man's eyes turn blue. And this is like cheating, but the same actor who plays the Night's King is the same actor who played the sacrificial human, so we can say that it's the same person. Back at the cave, Bran awakes, looks at Leaf, and says, It was you. You made the White Walkers. And she says, We were at war, we were being slaughtered. Our sacred trees cut down. We needed to defend ourselves. And Bran asks, from whom? From you, from men. This raises some interesting questions, um, mostly about the timeline. Extreme broad strokes here. Right. But our understanding from the books, and that understanding, we should say, does not include a clear picture of how the walkers, the others, were created. But- specifically pertaining to the sequence of events, our understanding is that the first men invaded Westeros where the children of the forest are already roamed free. Right. And these two factions warred. For a long time. Thousands of years. First men were cutting down their trees. Right. This was not okay. In time, after like, 2,000 years? Yes, something like that. They signed the pact. Right. They came to peace. You only make peace with your enemies. That's why it's called making peace. We should add, this is after the children call down some kind of magic to break the Arm of Dorne, which was the land bridge that the first men were using to walk over from Essos. So they already had tried to use magic to stop the first men once. The pact leads into what in... The story is referred to as the Age of Heroes, a time of peace and prosperity. And legendary people like Bran the Builder, who built Winterfell. Mm. Uh, Lan the Clever, the first uh, Lannister. And then 2,000 years later, 
we can say at a minimum 2,000 years after the pact was signed. 2,000 years of peace. Agreed to, I should say. And then the long night. Right. And we've heard Nan say this in this time, in this darkness, the others came. This is when, in the books, the White Walkers appear. Thousands of years after the first men and the children of the first have found peace. So the question here is... Why is the timeline different in the show? What does that mean? Now, there is a remote but technically existent possibility that maybe, because you mentioned the magic that the children were employing to attempt to thwart this foe, perhaps they did create the walkers and it just took a really long time for them to lose control of their creation. But from our understanding, at least, there's no appearance of the others until the long night. So it's a little hard for us to sort of wrap our heads around the idea that they would have come into existence and then just literally not done anything for all of that time. It seems to be that the show is saying that the children created the walkers as a weapon of war. And what's so interesting about that idea in in general, but also in the, the context of the theme that we're discussing, is really what a classic fantasy idea this yeah. is man or in this case the children you know a a group of beings conscious beings creates the thing that will ultimately destroy them yes this is not a new idea but it is a consistently excellent one yeah. it always works in a story and what do you have to do when you create the thing that destroys you you have to figure out a way to destroy it. That's right. And this is why Bran, seeing this and what he learns in the next episode from a new friend <laughs> about the role Obsidian can play in both sides of this, right. is so crucial. The thing that we know destroys them was also the thing that mm-hmm. creates them. The children. One question. After this episode, a lot of them were obviously taken out in the explosion the carnage at the cave, how many of them are left? Right. Because they they know, and now we know, that they are in possession of crucial knowledge and crucial right. information. Also, one of the great bits of lore in this story, the, the legend of the last hero, involves that hero seeking out the children, seeking out the knowledge that they have, the information that they have, to bring light back into the world. Jason and I are big proponents of the idea that John is going to fill this yes. role. Who can help John get the information that he needs? Okay, the children have the information, but part of the information John needs is that the children have the information. Right. Bran now knows this and can tell John. Sam, who's heading to the Citadel and already knows a lot about Obsidian and what it does, yes. is going to be able to gain even more information, learn even more, and continue to connect these dots. Should add. Read the pact being signed 2,000 years before the long night. I guess there's also the possibility that that timeline is still active and the children of the forest, for whatever reason, decided to betray men. We're just like, you know, this pact is not working for us. Right. For whatever reason, we're still getting killed and pushed back and giants are still dying and whatever. Certainly. So let's just, let's do these guys anyway. Fuck it. (laughs) But who knows? It's an interesting question. And then we turn to Bran. Boy, talk about great power. Just beginning to understand the responsibility. Not having any idea how it works, not having any idea the 
damage that he can do. We get a glimpse here. Hodor, one of the most tragic figures in the entire story because poor Willis never had a chance in his life, was never going to have a chance, was always going to be this uh, simple, uh, incommunicative giant man uh, because of the damage done to him by Bran somewhere out of time. So, okay, what does Bran see? So now Bran's next vision. He throws a rock at the three-eyed ravens, kind of like, you know, letting sand fall through his fingers, and is like, you know what? This guy's asleep. I'm going to go back in. He goes back in. He goes back to the place where the children created the White Walkers all those years ago. What takes him to that moment? It's a good question. Uh, His destiny, perhaps? (laughs) This is something we're going to get into. He sees the army of the dead, sees the Night's King standing there on his horse, kind of just implacably staring into the distance, and all of a sudden his head turns around, snaps right at Bran. Sees him. How? We don't know. Bran backs up, and then the Night's King's behind him, grabs his hand. He's been marked. Bran wakes up, says, he saw me, the Night's King. He saw me, the Three-Eyed Raven. He touched you. Then, he knows you are here. He'll come for you, Bran says, but he can't get in. And the Three-Eyed Raven says, he can now. His mark is on you. You must leave all of you. Okay, so is the Three-Eyed Raven a bad teacher? This was like a take I had when I first saw this. Why does it, Why does the Three-Eyed Raven not tell Bran right away, first right. day, day one of Treaternet class? Right. Guys, don't let the Night's King touch you. <laughs> That's rule number one. Right. Two, three, four, five. It's all the same rule. Don't let the Night's King touch you. Everything else we'll deal with. Why did he not do that? Ah, and this is another great fantasy trope. Honestly, it's one of my favorite. I think it's one of the most clever structurally that you can have. And it's very similar to, you think about the Lord of the Rings, right? First time you see the movies or read the books, you're like, why are they letting Gollum hang around all right. this time? Kill this guy. Right. Just get get rid of him. But you hear, no, 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 he's, he's, he has a part to play. You hear Gandalf say and other people say, and you're like, what? I don't understand. It. And then at the end, what happens? It turns out that because of the power of the ring, the power of the ring is so seductive that no person, no matter how good, could never could ever let go of it of their own will. So you needed Gollum there because he'd steal it from Frodo and then Frodo could be free of the ring. Now, what does the Three-Eyed Raven say to Bran in the previous episode when he first takes him to see his family? Bran complains after he's been pulled out. He says, you finally, after all these you know, months or however long we're here, you finally show me something good and now you take it away from me. And the Three-Eyed Raven says something to the effect of, it's beautiful under the sea, but, but you stay too long, you drown. What if the issue really is, what if the reason that the, that the Three-Eyed Raven didn't tell him is that Bran is so powerful that once he starts seeing things that he wants to see, starts understanding how to travel through time and, and see different eras of time, see his father again, he's just so powerful that there's no way you'd get him out of there again. He'd just be in there. So you would need some way to build into his you know, mission to stop the White Walkers, build something in that would force him to leave. How? Okay, don't tell him about the Night's King and let the figure, eventually the Night's King will find him or he will find the Night's King. Night's King will touch him and now he is forced to flee the cave. Right. So, not only why didn't he tell him not to let the Night's King touch him, but, oh, all of a sudden a touch breaks the wars. Right. How does having the Night's King's mark on Bran's forearm 
mean that the Night's King and his army can now penetrate the cave? How does that magic work? Why didn't we have like more uh, of a roadmap for that groundwork right. being laid? That stuff is extremely important in fantasy lore. But what if the answer to all of that is the groundwork was being laid the whole time, right. very subtly, very, very gently, and that the Three-Eyed Raven did actually want this to happen, or at least that he always knew it would. One of his other previous quotes from earlier in the season, in addition to the C one that you already referenced, is after Bran sees Ned at the Tower right. of Joy, obviously wants to linger in that moment and right. spend more time with Ned, understand what he's seeing, be with his family. And when he's complaining about not getting to linger there longer, the Three-Eyed Raven says, the past is already written, the ink is dry. Uh-huh. Is it? That's right. a question we're going to get to more in a minute when we talk to talk about Hodor and what happened there, whether that was predestined or whether Bran caused it or whether those are the same thing. Right. But he echoes this idea again, the Three-Eyed Raven, in that conversation in episode three. Bran says, I want to go back there. And he says, I've told you many times, stay too long where you don't belong and you will never return. That supports what Jason was saying a minute ago. A lot of tiny clues here in terms of basically expectation and anticipation. Let's go back all the way to season four when Bran and co. arrive in the first place. Remember, in this moment, Mira is overcome with grief because Jojen has just been killed. And she is expressing her pain. And one of the things that the Three-Eyed Raven says is... He knew. Yeah. He knew he, all along that this was going to happen, and he came anyway. Now, two things there that are key. One, it's confirmation that the Three-Eyed Raven had seen them. He right. goes out of his way to say as much. I've been watching right. all of you for years. For your whole lives. With all lives. of my eyes. Yes. With all, your, all of your lives, I've been watching. He, We are led to believe, led to understand that he knew not only what was in their past, but what was going to be in their future. This would support the idea that he knows what's going to happen to Bran. The other thing about that scene that's crucial is that the camera, and we've mentioned this before, lingers Mm. on Hodor when he's saying he knew and he came anyway. There's, again, subtle support there for the idea that this was all going to play out this way the whole time. Another thing that supports the time frame element of the Three-Eyed Raven knowing this was coming, he tells Bran flat out when Bran is throwing one of his temper tantrums about, I don't want to meet an old man with a tree on my butt. You're not going to be. Right. You're not going to be here forever. forever. Right. This is temporary. How would he know that unless he knew what the future held? He's not just like a gut feeling guy. Right. Then, after Bran returns from getting touched by the Night's King, just flat out, the Three-Eyed Raven is not surprised. Right. He's He's just like, yep. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He knew right away. What happened? When Bran says, the Night King, he saw me, it is not a coincidence that the Three-Eyed Raven instantly says, he touched you. Yeah. That's a bit of a leap if you don't actually know how this played out. And then Bran looks at his arm and sees the handprint. Right. It's like, oh. He did touch me. Yeah, you're onto something there. Then the next line from the Three-Eyed Raven, and this is crucial. The time has come. Sure, that could be a coincidental right. turn of phrase that's just like, the time is coming for the next step in our training here. Uh, right. 
guess we better get on with it. Or it can mean the time that I have been waiting for because I knew this was going to happen has come and I knew it was going to happen and thus allowed it to happen because that's how this works. One of the things we've talked about a lot on the show, particularly when it comes to Cersei, is how dangerous it is to fight the idea of fate. Yeah. To fight your fate, to fight prophecy. Maybe the smarter course is to let things play out the way that you think they're supposed to. That the time has come phrasing, not only is it interesting in that moment, he says it again later in the next vision. He uses that phrase a second time. In the first instance, it's the time has come for what for you to become me. Let's lock this training down in a hurry. Then the time has come. Leave me. And this is this is when the Night's King has arrived at the cave in the present day and kills the Three-Eyed Raven. And the Raven in Bran's vision in the past is kind of slashed and sort of vaporizes into the air and black smoke. Those kinds of choices on the show's part, deliberately repeating a line, choosing precise language like Mm -hmm. that, that indicates some sort of knowledge and foresight and intent, it's just flat out not a coincidence. The showrunners and the writers are too smart. There's another part where Bran... This is the first Tower of Joy scene. Bran calls to Ned. Ned turns for a second. Mm-hmm. Then he's get Bran gets pulled out by the Three-Eyed Raven. And Bran says, he heard me. And the Three-Eyed Raven goes, maybe. Wait, what? Maybe? And then he says, maybe he heard the wind. But he did. I mean, his first response was maybe. Look, I will freely admit that, like, we are both yeah. the kinds of... Uh, People who study this text in a way where we will hang on to any letter, let alone word or sentence that supports the argument that we want to make. But again, deliberate choice of language. Maybe it was the wind. Where have we heard this before? Osha talking to Bran about the weirwood tree. Exactly. Oh, they're talking to you. Do you hear them, boy? The gods. Right. It's the wind. Who Who, do you think sends the wind if not the gods? Well- that's an idea that Osha picks up from living in the north where yeah. the ways of the children, the old gods, the weirwood trees are still the dominant culture. That's the kind of stuff that Bloodraven is around too. Another thing where we can say this does not seem accidental. That's right. In the books, in A Game of Thrones, the first book, when Bran is unconscious after his fall, there's an amazing chapter full of Easter eggs. And one of the coolest parts comes at the very end of the chapter, where after gazing into the heart of winter, the crow who is with, uh, in the books it's the crow, not the raven, who is with Bran falling through the air in this vision, says, now you know, now you know why you must live. Okay. Again, that indicates that the crow, Three-Eyed Raven, knows that Bran has a specific role to play here in future events, specifically pertaining to the Heart of Winter, a.k.a. the White Walkers, a.k.a. the Night's King. Why, Bran asks? Because winter is coming. Further confirmation. And then, a couple paragraphs later, he remembers himself asking Ned, can a man still be brave if he's afraid? This is something we get on the show through Rob instead of through Bran. But it's that same idea about courage and choice, choosing to proceed, even if you're scared. Obviously, that is relevant in the moment that Bran is experiencing now. The crow says to him, now, Bran, choose, fly or die. And at that moment, Bran spreads his arms and flies. Flight symbolic for the sight here, choosing 
to be a part of this experience, choosing to be the three-eyed raven. He's essentially signing a contract. He's saying, I'm in on this. And at that moment in the books, when he makes that choice, he wakes up. And the crow pecks at his forehead, activating his third eye. He wakes up. And this is the beginning of the next phase in his life, the phase that he was perhaps always meant to experience. Okay, so the Three-Eyed Raven knows that the Night's King is coming. Perhaps his timeline got sped up a little bit. Whatever the case, he takes Bran back around the same time when Ned was still a boy, but not the exact same scene he saw before. Willis, future Hodor, is still there. Lord Ricard, uh, Bran's grandfather, Ned's father is there. And why does he take him back to this place? We don't really know, but we know what happens next. So as this is happening in the present timeline, the Whites and the Army of the Dead uh, is attacking. And in desperation, Mira is screaming at Bran, Worgen to Hodor now. We need help. We need backup. Worgen to Hodor now. Worgen to Hodor now. So Bran wargs Hodor after the Three-Eyed Raven says, listen to your friends, Bran. Bran can hear Mira across time and space. I guess the question now is, does Bran warg into past Hodor? And you know what I mean? Like, does he warg into past Hodor and that completes some kind of past present loop where their minds merge somehow and that's what damages his mind? We don't exactly know. So this is obviously a key question. He has precious little time. Right. But he takes him there. To continue his training and he takes him there. So why? Well, I think there are two things that, while we do not have the full picture, that we do know. One is that Bran does not have parents anymore. Right. And seeing his own father as he was about to to leave Winterfell, to right. leave his home and Perhaps go on to, a journey of his own to go to... The Vale. <laughs> To war with John Aaron and the mayor. <laughs> exactly. He is seeing his father take a journey, and he sees Rickard, Ned's father, a right. boy with his father. What is Rickard, Bran's grandfather, saying yeah. to Ned? Remember that you are a Stark. Comport yourself with dignity at the Vale. At the Vale. And try to stay out of fights. Right. Little Ned says, yes, father. But if you have to fight... Win. win. That is a really key lesson. Hearing that, and especially in light of what Bran has come to learn about Ned's life right. and the choices Ned has made and what he will th- soon come to learn in the second half of the season about the other choices Ned made yes. and the consequences of that. Some spoiler alerts here, but Bran knows who John, right? Who John's mom is. And Bran is going to be the vehicle of disseminating this information the fact that he understands more about the lessons Ned got and the fact that he can apply those own lessons to his life, crucial. Obviously, the other thing is what happens to Hodor there? It is, as with any time travel story, a question of how you think about this right. stuff. Like, it's there's no right. right or wrong answer because, and this is where people often get into trouble using time travel as a literary device, are we talking about parallel paths? Right. Is this like the flash? Where Are we in flashpoint now? Right. What's right? the causality? Exactly. Or is time a loop? Has this always happened? Is it all of this has happened before all of this has happened again? Time is a flat circle. Whatever 
show or book you want to borrow right. from. This is obviously a popular idea and question. And one of the reasons, why do people grapple with this? Let's think about this philosophically as human beings. Why is this an interesting idea to us? Because time travel directly connects to the idea of predestination. Right. Is your fate set? Is your destiny determined or do you have agency? Do your choices matter? There's not a question in the world that's more fundamental than that. And so Bran now is forced to grapple with that. Great power. We know he has it. Yeah. What about the responsibility? Well, there's the responsibility that he's going to have in the future That's to right. make the right choices, to make the right decision, and lo- to go fi- to become the Three-Eyed right. Raven now. And Lord Ricard said, stay out of trouble. Right. If you have to use your power, win. Use it well. There's also the responsibility from the past. Bran created Hodor. Yes. Bran made Hodor Hodor. The weight of that realization, the heaviness of carrying that with you, that would kill you no matter who you are, no matter how old you are. Bran is a child. Hodor is one of the closest people in the world to him, literally the person who carries him in his arms. And for Bran to have to come to understand that he is the reason we see it. We see it on Bran's face. There's the moment when realization dawns, when Willis looks at him, much like the way the Night King looks at him, he sees Bran. He actually sees him. He's doing what the Three-Eyed Raven said was impossible. Well, Ned can't hear you. These people can't see you. They don't know you're there. And when when Willis starts seizing, when Nan goes to him, Willis, what's the matter? And Willis is crying out, hold the door, hold the door. Bran starts to cry (laughs) right there in the vision. It's agonizing to watch. He understands. He understands that he did this, that he's the reason why this happened. Now, this also connects to another idea we've talked about a lot, which is the stark secrecy. For no one to have told... Ned is standing right there. He saw it. Now, he doesn't see Bran, but he still knows that... Old Ned saw it. All these people in Bran's life never tell him that his companion experienced this traumatic event. Why? Well, again... Part of this is that you have to discover these things on your own because that's when true understanding and enlightenment occurs. And only when you have that enlightenment and understanding can you opt in to actually completing your mission. The other thing with time travel and the idea of is this a circle is, well, is the ink dry? Right. Because if the ink is dry, then this always had to happen. Was Brand's destiny to make this choice and to create Hodor? Is Bran so powerful that he changed something about the timeline, about the way things were supposed to occur? Now we understand why. Look at the consequences. Look at what happened. Look at what the responsibility of that power is. The weight there does not just pertain to the past. Bran... What's the effect going to be as he as he makes choices moving forward, knowing the consequences of his actions in the past? Will that make him a more cautious but ultimately more effective hero? Will that completely debilitate him? Is he, for example, going to be willing to go through the wall and back home if he knows that having the mark on him at least once before allowed the Night's King to get where he was? The walkers cannot breach the wall. There is magic in the wall that prevents it, much like there was magic in the cave that prevents it. Does that change if Bran goes through? We don't know, but it's a question that we're asking ourselves, and it might be a question that Bran is asking himself. Hey, guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. 
live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to binge mode. The theme of great power and great responsibility is woven all throughout this episode. There's John being hesitant to fight for the North, understanding the power uh, that other people are looking for him to wield and that that power will result inevitably in people that he cares about dying. And then there's Kinvara's warning to Tyrion and Varys where she uh, talks about... Um, flame of truth. Flame. She Light said, of wisdom. Right, and tells uh, Lord Varys that, uh, you know, do you want me to tell you about the, the voice that you heard when your parts Ooh. were burned? And and basically warns them, Danny is the chosen one, essentially, of R'hllor, and that should not be trifled with. I like also what that means for Tyrion's yes. perspective, because he is in a position of power now, and yeah. he is making choices that, as we talked about in the last episode, are not necessarily good. Right. And when you hear the things that Kinvara is saying to them, whether it's about Danny and purifying non-believers by yeah. the thousands, burning their yeah, sins and flesh away, yeah. or whether it's about what happened to Varys, you have to sit there if you're Tyrion and say, what did I do here? Right. Who did I throw Am in Am I with? using my power wisely? There is a responsibility that there that he is not necessarily wielding properly. That's right. And then there's the king's moot and Euron. You know, one of the central themes of this story and many fantasy stories is the best leader is invariably the person who does not want to wield power, is distrustful of it, doesn't want the spotlight. Uh, Euron is not that guy. Euron wants power. And what's the very first thing he does once he has it? Where are my niece and nephew so I can kill them? In Euron's mind, power's only responsibility is to sustain itself. And there's Arya. You know, Arya's been getting the you're not ready, you're not ready, you're not ready for this power the entire time she's been at the House of Black and White. And the way that she is supposed to learn this responsibility is to essentially murder someone who's done nothing to her and actually seems uh, really nice. You know, and you seems lovely. Seems like a lovely person, has a lovely life. Loves it rum. Is a great actress. And that is how... Uh, Arya learns about the responsibility of taking life and death. Uh, it's not to be done lightly. It's obviously not an accident that Jockin chooses this moment in time right before sending her on this mission to finally tell her the history of the Faceless Men, <laughs> right, the origin right. story. He wants her to understand. Right. This is, the, this is the legacy that you have to carry on. This is some serious shit. The people who built this had a reason, a real reason, and you you have to decide whether you respect that. And... Think about what Arya is seeing when she goes to watch the Mummer's troop. Put yourself in her shoes. It's the great tragedy of her life turned into a mockery, yeah. turned into a farce for a crowd's amusement. You know, the legacy of Ned, the man that she loved and worshipped, has been corrupted, at least in part, for a crowd's amusement. You know, her pain is comedy for the masses. And it's a cruel, cruel test of the responsibility that she faces in this moment, in the the choice, do I pursue this mission or not? Well, what would pull her away more than that, than right. being reminded of who she is and what she's already gone through? Jason? Yes? The time has come. Blood Raven says so. Yeah. We spent a lot of time already talking about Bran, but we have a little bit more that we want to share. So, pass that werewood paste. 
Ooh, delicious. Mm, it's not so great. The saplings. first one. The second <laughs> spoon is good. The third spoon is just fucking tastes sublime. Like cinnamon and snow and, and memories. Amazing. Please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about Bran's visions in the books, his training in the books. What's the same? What's different? And most crucially for people who don't have that context, how tapping into the tree turnet actually works. Right. Bran's visions. In the books, Bran is taken before the Three-Eyed Raven, and after a certain amount of time, the Three-Eyed Raven presents Bran through the Children of the Forest with a bowl mm. of paste. It mm. looks like it's blood. It looks bloody in texture, better than acorn paste. Yeah, and it's really weird looking. He takes, uh, he eats it. The first bite is very bitter. Second bite is actually that's yeah, good. Third bite, as we said, absolutely. Sublime taste of honey and new fallen snow and pepper and cinnamon and the last kiss his mother ever gave him. Oh, that is really sad. It's <laughs> oh my god, super sad. And then Bran slips into the tree. The three-eyed raven tells him that you can slip into the trees the same way you slip into your dire wolf. And the trees now we learn from the three-eyed raven they experience time differently than men. To them, a thousand years is a is nothing. It's a blink of an eye. It just happens. They time to them is a river that flows around them and they can gaze out anywhere and any time they want. And so Bran closes his eyes, he goes into the tree and he sees things. The, one of the very very first things he sees is the godswood at Winterfell. Lord Eddard Stark, his father, cleaning ice across his lap and Bran says Winterfell when he realizes where he is and Ned looks up and says, who's there? And Bran pulls away and is like, what? You know, and he, he wakes back up. And the Three-Eyed Raven says, tell us what you saw. And Bran tells him, I saw Winterfell. I saw my father. He's not dead. He's alive. And Leaf says, no, he's gone, boy. Do not seek to call him back from death. I saw him, Bran says. He was cleaning ice. And Leaf says, you saw what you wish to see. Your heart yearns for your father and your home. So that is what you saw. The Three-Eyed Raven explains to him, you know, the lives of trees, how they're different. They root and grow, die in one place. And the trees can feel their entire lifespan from the acorn to the full-grown tree. And weirwoods, if left undisturbed, will live essentially forever. And Bran is trying to say, you know, my father, he, he heard me. And the Three-Eyed Raven tells him, I know you think that, but you can't speak to him. I have my ghosts as well. I've tried to speak to them. You can't change anything. And he asks, Bran asks, you know, will I see my father again? He says, yes. Once you have mastered your gifts, you may look where you will and see what the trees have seen, be it yesterday or last year or a thousand ages past. And then he also tells him, and this explains to us why Bran is able to see what goes on at the Tower of Joy, that in time, quote, you will see well beyond the trees themselves. So at first, he's going to have to see through the eyes of the trees, but after be able to project his mind far beyond that. So Bran goes back into the tree and then he sees his father, now younger, praying before the heart's tree. And he says, and this is very interesting, let them grow up close as brothers with only love between them. Who could he be I talking wonder. about? I wonder. And then he continues, and let my lady wife find it in her heart to forgive. Oh, oh really overestimated. Very interesting. And then Bran her. says again, watching this scene, he says, father, and again, father, it's me, it's Bran. And Ned Stark lifts his head and looks at the weirwood 
doesn't say anything, but has a he frowns a little bit. Um, and then Bran has a heartbreaking thought. He thinks, if I cry, will the trees begin to weep? And a thing about these hearts trees, and you you know you can look back at the at the show whenever they show these trees, they have the faces, of course, carved of them, and the the eyes. Or, you know, there's tears coming down. There's that the maple sap or sap. whatever that is coming down. And perhaps this is the green seer through the ages looking through the eyes of the trees and seeing just sad things over and over and over again. And then the last visions uh, that Bran sees just kind of happen in a jumble. He sees a girl who looks like Arya fighting with wooden swords with a person who is obviously her brother. And she wins. And then he sees a naked pregnant woman emerging from the godswood and begging the old gods for revenge. And then he sees uh, someone making weirwood arrows from the weirwood tree. And then he sees something from the ancient, ancient, ancient past. Men, hard men with big beards holding bronze weapons. So this tells us this is pre-Andal shit. This is first men shit. Uh, making a sacrifice before the heart's tree. And Bran Stark sees all of this. Incredible stuff. It's great. It's one of that is like people kind of shit on dance. This is Dance of Dragons, this is the, the book, the fifth book. And I the, love it. But man, that chapter is a mind blower. It's great. One thing, one follow up to connect what you just said to our prior discussion. He heard a whisper on the wind, a rustling amongst the leaves. You cannot speak to him. Try as you might. That's a little bit of a thorn in the side of our theory. Now, maybe it's just different on the show and the books. Maybe the rules are a little bit different. As we noted, the timeline might be different. The origin of the White Walkers might be different. It's not out of the question that the rules of this are different for show brand than they are for book brand. But it does seem like the Three-Eyed Raven in the books really truly does believe the ink is dry, right. that Bran cannot make contact with these people. So that's a bit of a complication for our view that in the show he might think the whole time that he right. can and is just leading Bran to discover this on his own. All right, Maester. Yes. A servant does not ask questions. All right. So let's make some statements. Absolutely. Let's head to the Sept right now to bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode, lightning round style. You go first. What's number one? Number one, Euron Greyjoy and the King's Smoot. So basically, a King's Smoot is a traditional ceremony held by Iron Islanders to choose their next king. It was enacted, uh, spearheaded essentially by the priests of the Drowned God thousands of years ago in order to stop internecine violence between the Ironborn. Uh, And then it was canceled out for a long time because one of the king's of the Iron Islanders basically descended on a King's Moon and killed everyone there. <laughs> so they stopped doing it for a long time after that. And this is the first one. Now, if the show canon is the same as the book canon, this is the first King's Smoot in a long time. Twitter question from, I don't know who this guy is, Zach Mack, Zach it says. Mack. Zach, at Zach the Mack. Uh, he <laughs> wants to know, wait, is this a new kind of resurrection? Oh, Did yeah. Euron no. actually die yes. and come back? It's basically like when you what almost... What can you tell Zach? It's, it's like when you almost drown, but, you, but then someone does CPR and you don't. Only what happens is you almost drown, they bring you up, and no one does CPR, and then if you cough up the water, you're good. Strength. That's right. Number two, Sansa. No. Haven't really chatted about Sansa much. We're going to chat about her more shortly, but remember... 
when Arya names needle what she says. Sansa can keep her sewing needles. Right. I've got a needle, capital N. I've got a needle of my own. Sewing was such a big thing for Sansa. She was the girly girl, always excelled in Septim Ordain's lessons, loved to sew, make, like make, making her own clothes. We hear her tell Cersei that she made her own gown. This is a big part of her character in the early years. Yeah. We get to see her sewing again in this episode. It's actually really charming and nice. She's rediscovering a little bit of who she is. The episode opens on her like stitching away and then later we see the fruits of her labor. There's this hilarious moment between John and Sansa where John says, new dress? Right, yeah. Keen, keen eye for fashion. Right. Sansa says, I made it myself. Do you like it? And John says, I like the wolf bit. <laughs> Incredible. And then Sansa says, good, because I made this for you. And she hands him new furs and leathers with the stark sigil engraved in the leathers. And... It is hard to overstate the magnitude yeah. of this moment. First of all, John, sworn brother of the Night's Watch, you forsake your family. You get rid of all of that. John hasn't worn Stark garb in years. That's right. He is, this is it. This is solidifying. His watch is, in fact, ended. He is a family man again. And as crucially, the magnitude of Sansa being the one to give John official Stark garb, officially legend- right. licensed merchandise from <laughs> HBO.com. I made it like the one father used to wear. Wow. She says, as near as I could remember. And he's genuinely taught. She says, thank you, Sansa. She says, you're welcome. Beautiful. Number three. Another great Sansa John moment, this time involving Brienne. Sansa says, what is it? Brienne says, I don't like leaving you here. Sansa says, with John." Brienne says, not him. He seems trustworthy. A bit brooding, perhaps. I suppose it's understandable, considering. And this is another <laughs> wink, uh, much like Ed saying, well, you made a joke. Uh, are you sure that's you in there? About kind of like a meta commentary on the fact that John is just a very brooding, emo and grim young man. Love it. Number four, sticking, sticking with the Castle Black crew for another second here. When Ed goes to say farewell to John, they embrace and John says, don't knock it down while I'm gone. <laughs> now the dun, it, dun, dun. the it in question here is obviously the wall. Is this a like subtle little primer for the viewers that the wall might fall? I think it is. hundred yeah, percent is that wall is coming down. <gasps> Where's that horn, Sam? Where's the horn? Where you better have that horn, Sam. Number five. Speaking of Ed, man, the Night's Watch. It is tough times at the Night's Watch. Some dude runs up to Ed and is like, shall we close the gate, Lord Commander? And Ed looks around like, are you talking to me? I'm not the Lord. Oh, yeah, I am. And then he puts on his best Lord Commander voice. Close the bloody gate. There are like four other people there. There's like, yeah, everybody's, there's like five other dudes. They just hung like five of their 45 guys. It's like very tough times at the night. Yikes. Number six. Need to talk for another two or three hours about the moment between Danny and Jorah. Tears in her eyes, tears in his eyes, yeah. tears in our eyes. Yeah. Shows her the grayscale. Is there a cure? I don't know. <laughs> How long does it take? I don't know that either. I've seen what happens when it goes far enough. I'll end things before that. I'm sorry. I'm so <laughs> sorry. And then this is the killer here. Don't be. All I've ever wanted was to serve you. Tyrion Lannister was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't say, bud. 
I love you. Oh my god. I'll always love you. Yeah, we didn't know. No one knew, Jora. You were keeping it so cool. <laughs> Number seven. Uh, this is. I have a problem with the fact that the waif is still whooping Arya's ass, even though Arya now has her sight. And it's not just that; it's that in episode four we got a classic sports movie training montage where Arya Stark blind all of a sudden is hanging with the waif is like blocking her bow staff hits is beating her up and now all of a sudden the waif is kicking her ass no that is that goes against the unwritten rules of training montages which is what happens in the training montage is canon you cannot then go back a level of competency you can't do that guys come on well i don't believe you anymore mel damn I don't need you anymore. Oh, God. You cannot protect me. Are you sure? Just like this week's champion. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game and advanced his or her cause in some tangible way. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse is... Sansa Stark. Oh, great episode for Sansa. She's been uh, crushing it this early season. All season long. Overshadowed in so many ways by her siblings or people we think are her siblings John you know Bran has obviously the huge storyline in this episode but her conversation with Littlefinger in Molestown puts her character development to this point on full display she is no longer this misguided meek child she's no longer afraid she's no longer willing to be the pawn in someone else's game and Littlefinger is either truly agonized and apologetic or at least pretending really convincingly to be <laughs> agonized and apologetic. It's very hard to say. He's on the verge of tears as he speaks to her, pleased with her. And she is not letting it soften her resolve at all. Here are some of the things that she says to him. Come to my aid. Did you know about Ramsey? If you didn't know, you're an idiot. If you did know, you're my enemy that cuts right to the right to the bone his response to her there is fascinating i made a mistake a horrible mistake i underestimated a stranger is that bullshit is it the first time he's done that it's it's an open question oh hard to tell i still think it's bullshit yeah but also that he does feel bad about what happened to her i think both of those things can be true i can still feel it she says to him i don't mean in my tender heart tender heart is a great pains me yeah She in that one line is showing you how she is just a different person now. You freed me from the monsters who murdered my family and you gave me to other monsters who murdered my family. Go back to Moat Kaelin. My brother and I will take the North on our own. I never want to see you again. Now, Littlefinger does not back down. Right. Ever. He has a pitch. That's right. He's like, ah, but you see, you need your own army. Jon Snow, yes, your half-brother. You haven't seen him in many, many years. He didn't really have a relationship before that. Can you trust him? You have to remember how traumatized she is by the things that have happened to her. And she's traumatized because she has always outsourced her security to other people who she foolishly trusted. Yes. Remember when the... the Tyrells came to her and like, oh, Loras, you can marry to Loras and this is great. And what happened? She believed in that and decided to stay in King's Landing. And then all this other shit happened to her, including the Purple Wedding, including getting married to Tyrion. She trusted them and they just used her for information. She realizes that now. She was used as a pawn. She doesn't want to be that person anymore. What? And, but she... 
she's not a fighter. She's not a warrior. What can she use? She can use information. That's what she learned from Littlefinger. Exactly. Keep this secret. Okay, Littlefinger crossed me for sure once, but I have some leverage over him now. I can rat him out to John any day. Right. I can tell Brienne to kill him right now, but I can use him still. I can use him right now. The other thing that people have to remember related to that idea yeah. of trust right. is that, okay, yes, John is her family, right. but they were never this is, close. We cannot reiterate this enough. They don't know each other. They, they have no relationship. Yeah. They are discovering each other in many ways for the first time. And she, you know, she says to Brienne, John... He's my brother. He'll protect me. She knows on some level that John is is good right. and that he is on her side. She knows that. She doesn't doubt that. But she has been through so much that she also knows that she can never fully, right. truly rely on another person again. What a debilitating, crippling realization that right. the only person you have in your life who you can rely on is yourself, of course. She learned that from Littlefinger in many right. ways. Yeah. So this is an ironic position for him to be in. And as you said, she is playing the game. You know, I at the time may come when you need an army loyal to you. I have an army. Your brother's army, half it's brother, a, I mean, it's a solid point. It's a toxic idea, a toxic seed that he's right. planted, but it is actually from, true. From her perspective, that is a very fair point. Most characters on this show right. would be thinking that way. Right. Sansa never has. So why are we holding it against her that now she is exactly. for the first time? The only reason we're holding it against her is because we all like Jon. Right. Not because she's actually making a bad decision just on the face of it. And then there's her performance on the War Council. I mean, she's done so much to spur the defense of the North. Remember, Jon, after his... Uh, rejuvenation, his resurrection, is like, yeah, I'm just going to walk the land. I'm out. And it's Sansa who said, that's our home. That's Bran's home. That's Rickon's home. That's our home for thousands of years. We, Whatever needs to be done, we can't let that stand. And now, in this moment, when Davos notes that the Umbers, the Karstarks, the Manderleys, they're the most important northern houses other than the Starks and Boltons, right. she is like, oh, I'm not just a fly on the wall here. Right. I have a voice. The Umbers gave Rickon to our enemies, she says. They can hang. She is actually, like, taking command yeah. here. She is at a table with John, former Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and Davos, former hand to a king. And she's like, actually, you're wrong. Here's why. Right. Well, she just well actually the hand of the king. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly it's incredible. right. incredible. She is a hardened woman. She's a true northern right. leader. Her The pride that she feels, it's not surface level shallow bullshit anymore. It's the most essential stuff in life. Speculative spoiler alerts. Anticipating a John Sansa rift in season seven, fueled by Littlefinger, reminding Sansa you're actually the Stark. This is your legacy, your moment. Take it. And then finally, there's the Brienne element here. Yeah. Of all the people who get to go recruit the Blackfish, who? Brienne, Sansa's woman. Right. Sansa's sworn shield is the person entrusted with this mission. Sansa's the one who decided what to do there. Right. Now, she was the one who shared the information with the group about River Run and right. the Tully's potentially being a, in a position to help them here. But this is the position Sansa's in now. She's saying, well, we'll do this now. This is what we'll do, and right. this is who we'll send. Incredible, incredible rise for her. All right, guys. It's safe to say a fragile piece has taken hold. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Season 6, Episode 6, Blood of My Blood. Until then, remember, 
build us a thousand ships, and we'll give you this world. Is there a cure? I don't know. How long does it take? I don't know that either. I've seen what happens when it goes far enough. I'll learn things before that. When we were, uh, on the grandstand at the fighting pits, I grabbed your hand. It was the, it was the other one. But you let me grab your hand. It was, it was the other one. It was the good hand. But you touched, do you touch that arm with your other hand? Not often. 